Green light pod Wednesday. Um, we're going to get straight into this thing. The main event is uh, none other than the man in the beret, Bruce Arians. There aren't too many athletes, coaches, who if all you had was a silhouette, you could identify them. Bruce is one of those guys. brought on Allbirds as a sponsor of the Greenlight Pod. And there's a reason we wanted to be involved with a company like Allbirds. They did not waste a lot of time in showing us that the decision we made was the right one. Let me read you a statement from Allbirds. Normally, this sponsored read would focus on what Allbirds does as a business and talk about one of our newest products, but there's something much more important happening in our country and around the world right now. Acknowledging injustice is not the kind thing to do, it's the right thing to do. As a business, Allbirds has always stood for the planet, and standing for the planet also means standing for its people. We believe that everyone should be able to enjoy all the Earth has to offer without fearing for their lives because of the color of their skin. And while we admit that we're not entirely sure what the right thing to do is at a time like this, we know that just stating our support isn't enough. We need to take action. As a first step, Allbirds has contributed to organizations like the National Movement for Black Lives and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to support their efforts. We encourage you to demand change and make your voices heard. Black Lives Matter. I'm just going to admit it. When I first got to know Bruce, it was from across the sideline. He was the coach of the Cardinals. And there was some back and forth banter between him and Jeff Fisher, somebody I'm fiercely loyal to. He took kind of a shot at Jeff. And I didn't like that and I didn't like Bruce um, when I was a player, but I didn't know anything about him. I just knew he was the guy that coached the Cardinals. You know, when you're a player, you don't pay attention to guys' histories or what they stand for. You just kind of look at them as uh, football coaches. Well, he's proven to be a terrific football coach. Um, obviously, got his first shot when Chuck Pagano uh, had to leave to deal with with uh, cancer treatment. Won nine games with the Colts. He's co- coached a lot of great quarterbacks and he'll have another great one this year in Tom Brady uh the big question is can he get creative and get Tom on the same page with his program and his players not to mention and we won't go into the defense a whole lot but that defense might be the reason they get a ring if they get a ring because that defense was stout last year and stout in the face of a lot of adversity. And by that, I mean sudden changes, a lack of complimentary football at times. And by sudden change, I mean when you're a player, you're a defensive player, you get off the field, you're dog tired, you go sit on the, the, the bench for some Gatorade or a towel. If you're in Tampa, a cold towel that's dipped in ice water and ice. And then somebody says, get your helmet and go back out there because Jameis just threw his third pick of the game and you're sprinting back on the field, backed up to your own 30, that type of thing. That was a regularity for them last year, and they were still essentially a top-five defense. Todd Bowles is doing a great job. So not to mention the weapons they have at one and two in, uh, in Evans and Godwin. They also have three talented tight ends. Um, their offensive line is becoming solidified. The questions for me are running back and uh, filling those third and fourth receiver slots. 
and seeing, you know, if they can distribute the football equitably among everybody, keep everybody happy, but they seem to have the type of personalities that they can pull this off with. And Tom, of course, is what it hinges on. And can he get a 43-year-old quarterback to at least learn a little bit of his system, enough of his system? I'm sure they'll collaborate. That's what he's done with quarterbacks historically. Uh, But can they do enough together to become successful in a division where there's a lot of continuity, at least in Atlanta and New Orleans? It's the murderer's row of quarterbacks over 33. And, you know, after Matt Ryan, who's 34, 35 years old, about my age, uh, you've got two 40-year-olds who are still playing at a high level. So stacked division, a lot of question marks. Bruce Arians, a guy I, I didn't know what to think of when I first got acquainted with him from across the sideline, but somebody I have tremendous respect for, somebody who, um, who's a very good coach and who most importantly has balls. I mean, he's, he's a coach that has not shied away from having tough conversations. Um, his whole thing on the football field is no risk it, no biscuit, which means we're going to play bold. We're going to take chances. Um, he's just as bold off the field. And to him, I'll ask him this, but I don't think it's uh, I don't th- think it's something that he puts effort into when it comes to speaking up for the right causes or um, leading by example when it comes to hiring practices that are equitable and uh, moving the ball in the right direction when it comes to the things that the Rooney rule are trying to address. I mean, he has a ton of coaches of color, and that's been his history. He brings everybody to the party and uh, a guy I respect. So can't wait to ask him about all that and more. Here's Bruce Arians, and after that, I'll have a brief mailbag. So joining me now uh, on the Green Light Pod, somebody I used to uh, look at from the other sideline when he was with the Cardinals, uh, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Bruce Arians. Uh, and before we get going, check out the Arians Family Foundation. They have masks available on their foundation website. That's ariansfamilyfoundation.org. The foundation also supports and develops programs to prevent neglect of children, something we can all get on board with, and then also works with CASA. So a lot of great work they do. How you doing, Coach? I'm doing great, Chris. How's everybody? Everybody's good, man. You know, uh, we were just talking offline. It's just such a... It's it's just such a, a time where I, I wonder when the world picks back up and gets going full speed again if uh, if we'll be ready for it and and you certainly have a unique circumstance with a new quarterback and a bunch of players who are waiting to get to work and uh, I know Zoom is about all you got to do right now. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, you know. The guys are so excited; everybody wants to get together. Uh, Tom's done a great job of getting some of the offensive guys out at a local high school and, and working out and teaching each other the offense, you know, after the Zoom meetings. But, uh, you know, right, we're missing, you know, that, that important team building time in the spring where you bring new players in or rookies. You know, our rookies, our rookies, we do something different, man. We practice on two fields. Our rookies get 400 snaps yeah. in, 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 in OTAs, which they've missed. They've got none. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. The team building part, it's really tough right now. Well, it's a great point because I really do think teams are forged mostly. I mean, certainly when the roster gets down to 53, the guys get closer. But where guys really learn about each other is when those rosters are swollen over the summer and the rookies are battling it out. Uh, You talked about the effect on rookies. They've missed 400 snaps. I've seen you talk about the effect on special teams. 
what are people missing uh, about the challenges that that this presents? I mean, everybody talks about distance and Zoom, but uh, you mentioned for one, you've got a, you've got rookies who have missed snaps. You've got a quarterback who, albeit, might be the goat, uh, but he's starting somewhere new. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, think back when you were a rookie and and you walked in that locker room and went, "Oh, wow, there's so and so." Well, we haven't gotten over Tom Brady yet. Yeah. The young guy is walking in the locker room and seeing Tom Brady, you know, yeah. and, and Gronkowski and the rest of our guys. Uh, that that awe factor, you, you need to get rid of that in the spring, you know, and now we're going to do it in training camp. And uh, it, it's just it's setting us back, you know, but it is what it is. And we got to deal with it. Uh, you dealt a hand, you play it and, uh, you know, you make the best of it. And and you're no stranger to bumps in the road. You've had to deal with uh, Chuck's uh, leave of absence with cancer, and you're the winningest interim head coach in NFL history. Uh, you had a plethora of injuries that I saw firsthand uh, in 2014 in our division with your team, kind of derailed it that way. I mean, you've dealt with you know controversy before. You've dealt with bumps in the road. This is unprecedented. I guess if there's any saving grace, this is everybody's first time dealing with this problem. I mean, Continuity helps, though, and you guys do have a number of players coming back. Yeah, we're very fortunate. You know, we only have two free agents, three. Joe Haig, Rob, and, and Tom. The defense is back. That was one of our top priorities was yeah. getting that defense back, you know, and not starting over with new guys. And yeah. uh, that, that was huge for us, especially those young guys on the back end, uh, being, being with the same front seven. Um, hearing the same things offensively, yeah, Tom. Tom's. It's not like we're starting with a rookie. I mean, I really, I, I pity Joe Burrow and, and those guys that are, are starting with new young quarterbacks and missing all of this, all the spring. You know, yeah, uh, it's it's such a it's a, such an unlevel playing field for the teams that have returning players. You know, especially if you're coming back intact, coaching staff and 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 players. Uh, I think it's a huge advantage in September. You know, uh, for those teams. Yeah. And you've got you've got young players who we'll get into in a bit, including a stud tackle, maybe a swing guy from from Iowa and Worfs. I think he could play all up and down the line, which is great. But he's a guy you'll you'll count on. And then you've got Tom and we'll get into Tom. But, you know, in, in the midst of all this kind of what the hell's going on from a player perspective, you've got the state of our country right now. And that's all anybody's been talking about, rightfully so. Uh, you have spoken out. You, you've never been one to, to be shy on issues like this. You were the first white player to room with a black player at Virginia Tech. I mean, and, and that was Tiki and Rondé's dad, uh, which is wild to me. By the way, it's nice to have the Commonwealth Cup. About uh, <laughs> 15 years, dude. It took you 15 <laughs> years to finally get it. <laughs> I got assholes reminding me I was 0-4. Uh, <laughs> That's why I wore this hat today. Did you? <laughs> it's all good, man. You know, you know, it's funny. Uh, it, it's hard to call it a rivalry the way it's been. I'll admit that. But uh, I do respect the program as much as it pains me to say I've never quite, you know, I might hate tech, but at least I respect them. With Maryland, I, I don't respect them and I hate them as well. I hear you. I hear you. There, there's, there's a big, there's a fine, fine line. But you've seen a shitload of stuff in our country. I mean, you experienced what you experienced uh, being kind of a part of that situation at Tech. Was that intentional? Did you volunteer to do that? Um, take me back to Blacksburg. It was dorm. We all lived in the dorms back then. And, you know, it was 50 years ago to, the, to this year. A bunch yeah. of us are going to try to get together here soon. And, uh, 
it was our freshman class 50th reunion. So, yeah, I mean, I, I came in, you know, and uh, I was just happy as hell to have a scholarship. I got kicked out of high school. So, I mean, I had one offer and it right. was, uh, it was tech and, uh, you know, I bleed hokey through and through just for that reason. But, uh, yeah. No, JB, JB, uh, they, they told me, hey, we're going to room with James Barber. I said, cool. My yeah. best friend in high school was black. You know I mean? I played on a predominantly black young high school football, a midget, midget football team. And then, you know, so it was, it was kind of the norm for me, uh, not, not for Virginia at that time, yeah. which I, I found out later. I had no idea about what I thought I lived in the South in Virginia until I moved to Mississippi. Right. You yeah. Know, then I found out what the South was really like. And uh, yeah, that was one of your next stops coaching. I mean, yeah. did you get a lot of blowback for being a part of what you thought wasn't a big deal, but obviously was in, in this state? Yeah, there were there were some players that would come down, you know, and, and 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 wait for JB to leave and ask me what it was like, you know, living with a black guy. And I'd say, I'm a lot better with you, man. I seen your room. Shit. <laughs> he got a, he's a, first of all, he's a great dude. You know, and uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was yeah we we hung a sign on our door, Salt and Pepper Incorporated. <laughs> it was uh, and we went on from there. I love it. Uh, but you so you you've experienced that from from day one, and the country's changed. Any American could see that over the past fifty years. But you you've enjoyed a vantage point within football that certainly there's a lot of change going on in football and consciousness of of uh, of some shortcomings within our game. One of the shortcomings, and I, I did a pod on this in the fall, um, and I really leaned on some of the black coaches I, I, I know around the league and I've made relationships with, to tell me what they think uh, are the shortcomings of the Rooney Rule, where the NFL and NFL coaches are missing the boat. You're, you're one guy that came up in conversations a lot. You know, you've got 29 coaching staff positions listed on the website. I count 11 minority coaches and two women. You're the first head coach with three black coordinators. But I don't feel like you're somebody that feels like you have to go out of your way to do it because you hired the guys that you believe are the right guys. What goes yeah. into your mindset? Yeah, I mean, when you're putting the staff together, I mean, one of the reasons I got back into coaching was because my staff was available, you know, and, and I, for the first time in my life, I wasn't going to call plays. And I had Byron Leftwich trained. Uh, he'd gotten, you know, he got baptized into it and uh, did a fantastic job for us last year, calling plays. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, did I intentionally go out and hire four minorities in the top spots? No, they're the best dudes I know. Right. You know, Todd Bowles played for me at Temple. He's been a head, he was my defensive coordinator in Arizona. Uh, Keith Armstrong played for me at Temple. He was a great special teams coordinator in Atlanta, played against him all those years. Harold Goodwin's been with me 17 years as assistant head coach, offensive line coach, run game coordinator, and then Byron. Um, but I, I've, I felt like former players, former players that want to find out if they want to coach. We started this program back in Arizona, uh, and our owner was gracious enough to call it the Bill Bedwell Fellowship. All right, guys come in on a two-year deal, all right? And it's more, does their wife want them to coach? Right. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, you might want to coach, but you're. I know exactly. Had, and like all our all our interns, we came in were former players. Yeah. Six or seven for spring and camp, and like, hey, coach, man, I love this shit, but my wife ain't digging it. Like, you, right. you can't coach, bro. It ain't gonna work. Right. You know, and because uh, you're gonna have to move. I moved my wife 19 times. 
Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's hard. That's one of the hardest things about being, I think, a, an NFL player, especially nowadays, and why we don't see as many former players that coaches, you know, they make all this money playing. It's hard to convince a guy who doesn't need anything unless they're just addicted to the game and yeah. you know, basically institutionalized by NFL facilities. I mean, like, I get it. I've, I've been in them for 11 years. I, I would be the last one to leave a lot of days. I'd just be sitting around not doing anything. And I know some guys, when they go home, they might miss it. But for the most part, it's hard to convince a player to come back and, and coach because of these long hours. You're not a guy that prescribes that you know, more is more in every situation thing. You, I've heard you talk about family time and such. Is that what makes it more attractive to be a former player and come coach for you? For you? I think it helps. I spoil them. You know, I mean, yeah. I've got a lot of former guys that played for me. Uh, Larry Foote went from playing linebacker to being the linebacker coach. He was ready. Yeah. He was ready. And we had guys that could help him along, you know. Um, so I, I think it's just the mentorship of guys to find out this really what I want to do. Right. You know? And, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, Steve Hyden came to Indianapolis for training camp, he and Brant Boyer. And, you know, Brant, Brant got hired as assistant special teams coach. I hired Steve as a tight end coach. It's just, yeah, my, my man, I'm all in. I mean, right. And when that hook sinks, when, that, when you wish well all that hook and coaching, yeah. you're done. I know. Done, you, you don't ever give it up, man. You yeah, just for the next job. It's a, it's a, it's a necessary vocation. We we need coaches. We need good coaches. Uh, but it's always great to see you know former players getting shots and thriving. And and you've had a number of them because I do think that although and I I'm not some elitist as a player that thinks that if you didn't play you can't coach. Some of the best coaches of all time played oh, yeah. the game, uh, not past the high school level, but. Uh, I do think there's that element of communication and empathy and respect between guys that live these situations that are very stressful. Um, and I think it's great that you've got them. Regarding the Rooney rule, um, you know, I, I know that you've put your head down and just tried to be a part of the solution by being who you are. But knowing that not everybody is like you. Uh, and there are a number of coaches we, we've seen lately because nobody can hide and you have to speak on it that don't get it yet. Um, what would you tell other coaches and are there any tweaks you would make to the Rooney rule? Because sometimes I look at it, it's not just the pool of head coaching candidates. It's the entire pipeline. It's the access to the quarterback room. It's the access to the O-line room. You know, how would you tweak the rule to be more exhaustive? I think, I think the new tweaks were good. The more interviews, the more chances guys have to wow the owner, you know, and that's what it is. It's going to take the, and you're going to have to have some form of relationship. I don't think you just go in cold and get a job. You know, very seldom does that happen. Um, but to, to wow the GM and wow the, GM, the, the owner or the ownership group, you got to have an interview. You got, you got yeah. to have, so the more people that get in that room, the better opportunities. So the more we can mandate you have to do these things, mm -hmm. uh, coordinators, uh, then the quarterback coach things that's a hard one, man, because they're hard to find. Right. You know, like you said, former players made a lot of money, uh, and, and they don't they don't want to coach. I mean, it took me four years to get Byron off the couch to <laughs> to, say, to get off the golf course, really, to say, "Yeah, man, I want to try that." And uh, so it, it's not the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. That that quarterback situation, I think, is going to be the hardest. And I, I love the fact I'm going to speak 
at the symposium uh, on the 22nd and 23rd to answer questions uh, for that quarterback situation that they're building in Atlanta with, with um, Jimmy Ray setting up and, and yeah. Shaq and those guys. And, uh, you know, I, th I think that's, that's a great step forward. Just find them, you know, find out who they are, where they're at, and, and let's see what the opportunities come. Is there a former player uh, that, that you're coaching above right now on your staff that you're saying that guy's a head coach one day? I'm sure there's more than one, but is there Oh, yeah, I, I've got three or four. I mean, yeah. Byron will be a head coach, I think, fast. Uh, Todd Bowles, if he wants to be back as a head coach, he will be a head coach again. I think Larry Foote, Mike Caldwell. I think Harold Goodwin should be a head coach. I mean, th those guys – and, and uh, Keith, Keith, his age is going to get him like me, you know, but uh, – they're they're all qualified. It's just getting the right opportunity. Keith had a he had interview to follow me in in Arizona, and it was real close. Do you ever wonder? Because you know it does take. It's not you know. There's certainly white coaches who had to wait a long time. You know, I'm I'm not. Uh, that's not to to minimize the obvious plight of a black coach in the NFL. I mean, even your experience of having to wait a while. Um, I don't know. Does if if Chuck doesn't get sick, how long do you think you're waiting? I don't think I ever hit a job. Yeah. No, never. It doesn't happen. You know, I, I'd probably still be there with him. Um, you know, after Super Bowl 43, we made that drive to win the game and, and beat Arizona when I was in Pittsburgh. Never even got a phone call. I kind of figured it wasn't in the cards for me. It wasn't going to happen, you yeah. know. And uh, at that time, I never had an agent. I never believed that stuff was that important. Uh, then, you know, once once everything happened in in, uh, in Indianapolis, I, I learned a little bit more of a lesson. Yeah, back to the the topic at hand with everything swirling around football and in our country right now. Um, what's a coach's job right now? Because you know, coaches can't solve this problem alone. Um, most NFL coaches, you know, although they might benefit from a system uh, where we get a leg up if they're white coaches, uh, they're not trying to perpetuate it, and certainly they didn't create it but they coach locker rooms full of black men who are hurting right now, very obviously hurting right now and dealing with a lot. What's your job as a head coach? What do players need from, from their leadership at this point? I think the first and foremost is listen and give as much advice as possible, but just listen, just listen. And, uh, you know, um, I don't know what else we can do right now. I think then when the pro, like I said the other day, when the protests are over, let's take action. Yeah. So let's go back on the couch and say, well, hey, I, I, I hollered, I screamed, I protested. And, that, and that's just the beginning. Mm -hmm. Let us go take positive action. And, uh, you know, I, I look at this generation of six to eight year old kids who just missed half their school year because of the virus. Half of them didn't get fed because they got fed in school. And who's who's. Who's talking to them? Who's helping them? Um, the, the kids without parents or single families. Who's, who's helping those children right now? Because that next generation is the one that's going to break it. Right. We can't break it. It's too right. late for us. But right. the next generation of children, uh, we, can, we can help them break the system. Yeah, I do. There's a lot of hope for me. And you've seen multiple generations swing and miss at this thing. Uh, and, you know, as much shit as I might want to give Generation Z or whatever you call them, uh, these, young, these young kids, 
they uh, they might be the ones to 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 chip away at this thing and to put that next generation that you're referring to in in a position to be uh, that final piece of the puzzle. So I'm hoping that you know all this attention and I, I think it's key that we are uncomfortable that these protests are happening that people are making their voices heard. Uh, I think that's a necessity. The acknowledgement is a necessity. But to your point, the, the the action following it is big. On the football field, you know, we dealt with the cap thing four years ago. I don't think – I think there were a lot of players, coaches, people in this country, and I've had a number of them in my mentions on Twitter and that sort of thing say, shit, man, four years ago, I didn't get it. I get it now. Uh, you know, and, and that protest played a role in that acknowledgement and awareness that I think puts us – where we need to be right now. And it's also empowered players to talk. So in the fall, if y'all get back to work, I know there's going to be players protesting. Do you encourage your guys to do that? Uh, how do you handle that? I think for them, whatever they feel is right. That makes them feel whole and it helps them get through it. Yeah. If, if, if it's kneeling, if it's a fist, if it's whatever, yeah. you know, uh, whatever, it's such a personal thing to, for each and every individual guy, you know, and, um, and it's not for everybody, right? you know, but everybody's got to acknowledge each other. And, you know, the, the beauty of the locker room is that everybody's got each other's back. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the one safe haven is the locker room and uh, to listen to each other, to help each other in those times, because it's, it's not going to just go away. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be something that we have to keep addressing and keep addressing and keep addressing until the, to the next generation fixes it. I mean, you got to at times on some of these issues work really faithfully because you might not see the fruits of your labor or the collective fruits of our labor, you know, in this time, I mean, you and I might not see it period. I love what Anquan and those guys are doing. Yeah. Players Coalition, our ownership is fantastic. We've got a social justice program, and our guys are active. I mean, they had a big Zoom meeting, all the guys. I stay out of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, because it, it's their team. It's not my team. Right. I mean, that, that's the first premise we make. This, this is your team. Well, I think it also helps that you've already made that acknowledgement on many occasions. I mean, you're, you're not one that's ever hid from it. So I don't think, you know, like for some coaches, this might be their first week grappling with this stuff and their players yeah. might be introducing them to these realities. And although we all need to listen, you know, you certainly, you're not a rookie at this or, uh, you know, somebody who's had your ears and eyes closed. Last tough on football question, I promise. I can't wait to talk about sports. I mean, I love it if this shit went away and we solved this problem, but obviously it's going to be a while. In the meantime, there's still sports. You were the head coach at Temple. Uh, you had uh, a runner up in the Heisman race, Paul Palmer. Signed with an agent earlier. They had to vacate some wins. You know, the, the, the amateurism question in sports right now. Uh, yeah, I feel like we hold these guys to such an unrealistic standard who are putting in a lot of work. You've coached at both levels. Where do you think that needs to go? Oh, I think I, think, I, I love the fact that they're going to be able to sign and get autographs and get paid. But again, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a female volleyball player, how much you getting paid for your autograph? Right. I think it's got to be equal. Yeah. You know, long, long time ago, I think in 1983, a professor, uh, it might have been Stanford, said, you know, one percent or two percent of all gross revenue needs to go back to the student athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, now whether it's your sport, 
which isn't, you know, football is going to get paid. Volleyball is probably not. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think all those, the, the, the student athletes have to have some kind of stipends. Much, much. I mean, I, when I had $15 a month in, in 1970, from, for they call it laundry money, and that's my only 15 bucks. Right. You know, I had to make it work. And uh, yeah. so yeah. I, th- I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's got to be something done to help these guys because they're, 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 they're generating billions of dollars of revenue for the universities and, yeah. uh, and they're not getting enough back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tom, okay, Tom Brady, that's what everybody wants to talk to you about. But, you know, you've got a guy who uh, is most people would call him the GOAT. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on that whole discussion, but you're a quarterback whisperer, well-known to be one. Um, do you have anything to whisper to him about? Like, what, like, what do you do <coughs> when you're dealing with somebody like Tom who probably knows he's made the mistake? He probably knows how to correct it. You guys are certainly brilliant um, in your own rights, uh, but coaching him has got to be way different than coaching other players, or is it? Uh, yes and no. I, I think it's a for me. I, I love I, I love his enthusiasm, his energy, uh, diving into our offense, and then hey, let's learn our offense. Then you and I sit down. Hey, when whenever we can, hopefully soon, and you tell me the ten best things you like, and, and we're working together and, and mesh it out. You know, I, I want you going into that New Orleans game as comfortable as possible whether it's stuff we do or stuff that you've done in the past and we rename it, but, uh, and we teach it the way you want to talk. And I love collaboration. I've always, that's the most fun in coaching is me is collaboration with quarterbacks and uh, picking plays and picking game plans and, and those types of things. And you know, Tom's been fantastic. And uh, the fact that, that, that he has his resume, um, he's acting like a rookie right now. Right. And, uh, and I love it. Yeah, I've always said he was one of, you know, I only spent a year up there in New England, but he, he was always one of the most everyman, superstar, quarterback, leaders that I've ever been around. For somebody with such a transcendent brand, he truly was inquisitive. He took coaching. He treated all his teammates with respect. And obviously right now there's not as much, you know, full team congregation. But I remember he would treat the 53rd guy on the roster just like the first and I think that's huge, uh, and I think that'll translate. But schematically, you guys push the ball down the field. That's what you do. Um, obviously, with Jameis, he was very aggressive. Tom's arm isn't what it used to be. How do you guys collaborate on the type of tougher throws that you're used to seeing um, that maybe he can't make at this stage, which is fairly reasonable. He's 43 years old. Yeah, I mean, he made the best statement, man. Throw it to the dude that's open. Right. And it, is it the deeper? Now, in our offense, he, maybe he hasn't been allowed to look deep first, you know, but still got to get it out of your hand. You can't hold on to it. Right. And, uh, but we do look deep on majority of our stuff down to short. But we have a lot of stuff where we work short to deep. Right. And, uh, you know, and we, we run a ton of empty, which he's done well. And the play action game that they've used in the last four or five years is almost identical to ours. And uh, so, yeah, I think. For him, it's just learning the language, you know, and I, when I reevaluated all his tape, I didn't see, I didn't see a poor arm. No. But when, when he had guys deep, he hit them. Right. His deep ball accuracy was outstanding. <laughs> he just didn't have that many speed burners, you know? 
Yeah. What do you, what do you think is tougher working short to deep or working deep to short? I mean, obviously I don't know much about the position other than trying to chase them down, well, but I, I think it's always easier short to deep. Yeah. You know, if the guy's open in the flat, take it and yeah. get to the next down. Uh, but sometimes <clears throat> you have to know the matchups. All right. If we have Mike Evans in the slot and for whatever reason, we catch him on a safety one-on-one, yeah. take the deep shot. I don't th- I don't care if it's third and two. Right. Taking, you mm-hmm. know, it's just knowing your matchups. And I think that's where Tom will relish in our offenses is when we create these matchups and he knows he's got them is to exploit them. You'll have so many matchup problems for other teams. I mean, listen, your division is, uh, is stacked, but any team is going to look at your weaponry and say, golly, I mean, if somebody emerges as the three and four uh, threat, because I know you like to push the ball down the, fo- the field, you like four, four guys outside on the field at different times. I mean, pick your poison. You've got that. You can run 13 personnel. I know that you're going to rely heavily on 12. I mean, people complain about O.J. Howard's usage last year, but he played a ton, and he was a big part of what y'all did. You know, like with the tight ends, how do you you balance that? Because you've got three guys that can catch the ball and be a part of what you do. How do you sell blocking and, and the dirty work to guys that might want touches? Yeah, I, I think it's the same at wide receiver. You know, I, I look back to Heinz Ward. He was kind of the bell cow of, I block, you block, I throw you the ball. All right, you block, I'll design stuff for you in the red zone to get touchdowns. And Gronk is a notorious blocker. He loves blocking. Yeah. You know? So that, that just permeates in the room. All right, the top guy's doing it, everybody's going to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, our, and OJ and Cam both – Man, they, they blocked their ass off last year. They gave us all the effort in the world. Right. And, uh, and, again, it's just <clears throat> finding matchups. And, and we had O.J. two or three times last year that his numbers might have been better if we hit him. You know, I guess they right. back to the Houston game on a double move, and we had him and we missed him to win the game. And uh, so, yeah, I, was, uh, I always get criticized. I don't use the tight end, but when I had Heath Miller, he went to the Pro Bowl. My guy, Heath, because, yeah. Because yeah. Ben Roethlisberger loved Heath Miller. Yeah. That was his security blanket. You know, so it's, it's just building that chemistry. Yeah, and by the way, Heath just moved out of town. We, uh, he, he moved back to Pittsburgh. He, he, he had had enough of small town life. He wanted to go back up to the Steel City. So Is that right? Yeah, he just he, – because, you know, me and Heath played together at Virginia. We, we yeah. overlapped by a year, and um, – yeah, we we were five miles apart here for a while, and then he just he just rolled out. I guess he something about the Steel City. <laughs> he went back home. I would too if I was Heath Miller. They love him up there. I mean, oh man, he's God. He is God. Yes, indeed. So one of the most consistent and reliable people I've ever been around as a player and a person. Um, you know, Gronk with the blocking thing. You mentioned that. You know, we know he's a, a good blocker. He was a couple years ago. I've seen pictures of him. We all deflate when we leave the game. I think some people think we get off the juice or something. But when you stop pounding calories and lifting weights every day, uh, guys get skinny. How's Gronk's transformation back into a football player going? And do you ever have have you ever had experience dealing with a guy who had to come out of retirement? Uh, yeah, a couple. But uh, yeah, he's. I mean, he never got too low. I mean, he's almost. I think he's around two sixty two, sixty three. But I don't really. He doesn't need to be two seventy again. Right, two seventy five. Just get two sixty five max, and uh, and and take that weight off your body, and and uh, you'll you'll be better because I mean that ten pounds isn't helping your blocking that much. 
you know, no. it's, those, it's those squats and those things. And, uh, you know, he's, he's working his ass off right now and, uh, and ready to go. So I, I think the explosion is still in his body, uh, but not a 60 play a game guy. Right. You gotta right. be real smart. We have to be smart as a coach and staff. Yeah. Especially coming out of something like a long layoff where, you know, on top of the retirement, you, you just don't have eyes on people physically, you know, all summer. So that makes sense. Uh, quarterback thing. Here's an interesting one I heard. Okay, you're preparing for a season with COVID. And I, yeah, I'm not going to hammer you on COVID stuff because we just don't know. We don't know where it's going to be in the fall. We can speculate. But the one thing I wonder is there's a lot of players um, that if they tested positive, you would – have to make some adjustments as long as it's contained. Um, and I know that probably they'll expect players to quarantine for two weeks if they test positive. I don't know. But with the quarterback position, okay, it's a room full of two, three guys. Uh, if Tom tests positive for COVID, knock on wood, you're going to need a good backup. But what if that backup's been sitting in the room for him while he's infective or symptomatic? I heard some crazy, but maybe it's not such a crazy idea to have a quarterback on your roster that is not at the facility around the guys because you could conceivably end up in a situation where you're down to quarterback three relatively quickly. Yeah. That's one of the things I've been pondering in the last two or three weeks as we, as we set the protocols. Uh, and from what I'm understanding is if you test positive, you're quarantined for two weeks. Now that if you have no symptoms, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Uh, is it, a, is it a false one? Is it, a, I mean, uh, so I don't, there's so much to, to learn and, and still explore with this thing. But I've thought about keeping the third quarterback on the roster out of the room. Mm-hmm. You know, we have two guys that have been in our system really sharp. So I might have to quarantine a quarterback just in case of a quarantine. Right. Yeah. This year, you know, w- with the possibility of no crowds, how does that change the way you prepare players? Because I know that, like, for a young player on the road, on the offensive line, that might be a good thing. You know, you might not have to use silent count, you know, for a defensive lineman who's accustomed to having a big home field advantage somewhere like Seattle. You know, you might look at this and say, man, shit, I need the fans. Have you thought about the communication and how to how to communicate with your players without the other team hearing and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very unique situation. We open in New Orleans, one of the loudest places in the league. And to not have fans would be unbelievable for a young tackle. Yeah, well, and for Tom Brady to use a hard count. Yeah. You know? So it would it would level the playing field for a young tackle especially. Uh, so yeah, I, I think yeah, we have to and then we play them again so whatever verbiage you're using as audibles and different things in your tap counts, you're probably going to have to change the next time you play them. Yeah, there's going to be a game of chess that's going on that fans don't even understand with the communication because you're essentially now going to practice with people. If there's no fans, you know, imagine all the times we used to seal the offensive signs and communication and practice. That's going to be what it is, especially in division. So got to keep an eye on that for sure. I said I can't cuss out the refs as loud because my mom will hear it on television. (laughs) That's another thing, the shit talking. The trash talking, like, uh, you know, people are like, man, I really want an inside look at what players say to each other on the field. I'm like, are you sure? Because <laughs> your favorites, your heroes. No, you don't. Might take them down enough. I mean, there's going to be some unorthodox things that y'all have to consider going into this year that just – well, I mean, the blank. biggest thing is nobody, nobody's facility is big enough to handle the protocol. The actual, yeah, the actual distancing. 
So we have, so we have 90 guys, 30, we have 30 coaches and, and you have to sit six feet apart. We don't have a, we don't have a room big enough for that. Well, I mean, you know, and it, we play in the most contact, uh, heavy sport, you know, so there's no distancing between players. You can, you can throw that, that out the window and then your players, they go home from work eventually. Um, and you know, for you, they might go home an hour earlier than some people who, who keep the players in the building way longer. Uh, you know, they have families, they have social lives, and then there's expansive staffs that fans don't know about. I just think it's going to be tough to contact trace everybody. And, you know, you as a coach, have you thought about how much you'll discourage guys to get out and about? I mean, I know that's yeah, a yeah, I mean, situation. When we, when we get together, it's going to be like, dude, you got to be smart. Hopefully there's fans, you know, but if you're flying family members in, you better have them tested before they come in. You know, I mean, to say that they're going to stay at your house, all the things that we have to go through to make sure that that positive test doesn't show up. I mean, right. there's not going to be I mean, going out to restaurants and that's, that's got to be like, you got to be really, really, really smart. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, until we get through this, this season and see how this goes. Yeah, absolutely. Mike Evans, best wide receiver in the NFL. I mean, I certainly would say he's the most underrated. Yeah, I, he's the best I've coached, and I've coached some really good ones. You know, Larry Fitzgerald, Marvin Harrison, Hines Ward, uh, a lot of good ones. Uh, Mike uh, is—he is heading in that direction to be better. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say he's better yet. Heading in that direction. First of all, he's a great young man, uh, just fantastic, great teammate. Um, but his skill set is unique for a big man to be able to drop his hips. And run routes the way he does. Um, yeah, he's he's a very unique player. If he's if he's not the best, he's one of the top five. You know the the Tristan Wirfs thing. You, you you're expecting him to contribute, and so that's a tough thing, anyways, for a rookie. But you add in the lack of time with everybody. Um, is there a position as a rookie that you think is the hardest to roll into with no prep, kind of like guys are doing now? And is there one that's easier than others? Yeah, I think both tackles are really hard yeah. because you haven't seen the speed rushers and the power you're seeing. You're going to see. Um, <clears throat> I think if there's an easy spot, it's a running back because other than pass protection, all right, a running back just runs. He's doing the same thing he's always done. He's running with the ball. His eyes are good. His vision's good. His instincts are good. Now, <laughs> if he can't pass block, don't ask him to until right. he, he learns how to. You know, but and that's the biggest that's the biggest step for a running back coming into the league is pass protection. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the easiest spot. Uh, probably receiver would be next. Quarterbacks in slumps. I heard a, the story about Peyton and he, him throwing a hat trick the wrong way, and you just saying, "Hey, we're keeping you out here," you know, because because it's a mental game too when you make a mistake as a player. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Peyton's rookie year up in New England. And he'd thrown three or four picks. And you, I could tell by his voice, you know, hey, I'm, I really want to get out of this game. There's only like, you know, 12 minutes left or whatever. It's like, dude, we're going no huddle, two minute, go learn something. Yeah. All right. Just get to experience, learn something. And uh, I think he took about five checks down to Marshall Falk and we went down and scored a touchdown. And I said, he just learned something. Your running back's your best friend. Mm -hmm. You know, take the check down. And, uh, but yeah, he kept growing from there on out, you know. And uh, you know, Jameis was Jameis was a guy that uh, he come to the sideline, that play was over. He was on to the next. 
And, um, you know, and I, th I think James is going to have a hell of a career. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, if Tom was available, we had to make that decision. And, um, and I wish him all the best. I got a quick grab bag for you. What are your biggest pet peeves as a coach? Every coach I've ever, I've ever had, had like, you know, that like, this is that guy's bugaboo, whether it's being late, whether it's, you know, tucking your shirt in at practice. What's the thing that if somebody played for you, they're like, Bruce does not fuck around on that. Being late. Yeah. yeah. Being on time. And that's just a respect. Yeah. You know, we don't have any rules. We have three words, trust, loyalty, and respect. Every year I, I put a, the definition of those words. All right. If you just do these three things, we're not going to have any problems. Right. Everybody's going to be fine. You know, and you can't trust. I can't trust you till I trust myself. Mm -hmm. You got to look in the mirror and trust that guy first and yeah. then be loyal to the cause. And the cause is the ring. So whatever decisions you're making and then respect is respect is coming to work. You know, it's, it's, it, I think mom and dad taught us all to respect each other and we need to do more of that. But for us, it's respect to process. This is yeah. Monday's work. This is Monday's work. This is Tuesday's work. This is Wednesday's work. We have to get it done and uh, for us to be successful on Sunday. Where does the, uh, the Big Ben to San Antonio throw that you referenced earlier rank in throws and catches in Super Bowl history? It, the throw was amazing. I think San Antonio just put his hands up. I mean, <laughs> Tony did a great job of keeping his toes down. Yeah, the throw. When you think about, and everybody runs a star pattern, you know. And it was Hines on the goal line, back in the flat, and, and Ben pumps, and only he could actually throw it and pull it back, mm -hmm. and then reload it and throw it over top of Cromartie's head mm -hmm. in the back of the end zone where only Tone could catch it. And uh, it's one of the one of the greatest throws I've ever seen. Of all the head coaches you worked under, give me one that you'd want to quarantine with. In a house, it's a nice house. You've got internet, you got TV, you guys can drink beer and hang out. You just can't leave the house. And give me one that you absolutely wouldn't want to quarantine with. You got to spend a month. Uh, Jimmy Sharp would be the one I wanted to. He was my 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 coach at Virginia Tech my senior year. Okay, he got he got me into coaching, and uh, and I love him to death. The one I would not want to be with was probably Jackie Sherrill. Oh, really? What's wrong with Jackie Sherrill? I just Jack. You know, it's just, it just wouldn't work. I just know it wouldn't work. Okay. Say no more. <laughs> He'd be telling me what I was doing wrong all day. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I'm trying to relax. I'm stressed. There's a pandemic. One thing that people might not know about Bear Bryant. Coach was a master of personnel. I don't know if enough people realize we play 66 players a game. If you wanted to get your ass fired, you'd send somebody in because he substituted every player. Really? And we played three quarterbacks, nine running backs. He picked and chose when he played everybody. And that's way ahead of his time. I mean, nowadays, if you're not subbing, at least on my side of the ball, uh, you, you're, you're in the dark ages. So, oh, he was, Coach Bryant was a master of personnel. Yeah. Knowing oh. when to put this guy in. How about uh, out of all the quarterbacks you've coached, can you build me a Frankenstein? Perfect traits. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been very lucky. I, I, Peyton's brain, Ben's ability and heart and toughness, Carson's deep ball. Yeah, <laughs> Timmy Couch's toughness and his 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 ability to throw into the second level, and then if you put all those together, you probably have Andrew Luck. <laughs> and and uh, and the conscience of Jameis with maybe a little little more conscience, <laughs> a little more conscience. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good. Uh, dry heat or Florida humidity? What's worse? 
dry heat, man. That's that's like putting your head in a microwave. <laughs> Give me the humidity. I like sweating. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I mean, that's I'm kind of from here, so I'm good with that. Um, Give me the first time you put on a beret. How did that start? Oh, I mean, I was a kid. I mean, we wore hats in in, in the streets of York. You know, Uh, you've worn them sideways. Everybody had a hat, you know, and uh, uh, a big apple or something. You know, I was always had that style of hat and. through the years, they just got a little bit different, a little bit colorful. And then then when we got, actually when the foundation started is when I started wearing them all the time because we could sell them to help, yeah. help children. Yeah. And then lastly, uh, Cleveland and Pittsburgh, which one was more blue collar a city? Oh, Cleveland. Yeah? Yeah, Cleveland. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the Browns fans, I always go back week 16. The Colts, we need to win and go to the playoffs. They're one in fourteen and snowing like crazy. We offer warm ups. I told Peyton, I said, you ain't gonna worry about signing count today. There ain't gonna be nobody here. We come back out and there's an ass in every seat. Yeah. I mean, they're going crazy. Yeah. And uh, then then the coach there for three years and uh, yeah, I, I think the Browns fans are are some of the hardiest fans. Again, I want everybody to check out the uh, Arians Family Foundation. Dot org. That's where you can find it. Uh, they work with CASA. They work with programs to prevent neglect of children. And they have masks on that are stylish. I saw them on the site. So go check it out. Coach, thank you so much. You've been very gracious with your time. I know you got a football season to get ready for. Appreciate it. Tell everybody hi for me. Tell Pop, hey. Good luck this year, man. I appreciate it, brother. Okay, talk soon. So that was Bruce Arians. And um, I mean, he said a lot of interesting stuff there. I was really excited that he had thought about the same thing I've been thinking about, which is uh, that possibility of keeping a quarterback in the bullpen, so to speak. That's um, a very interesting topic to me. It's unprecedented in football to have to worry about this. Obviously, you've, every fall you have to worry about the flu, but you know, uh, probably what's going to be a mandated two-week period uh, of quarantine for a quarterback if, if one unfortunately comes down with COVID could derail a team's season. Uh, two games can really, can really, really change things. Um, so him addressing that, talking about that, um, was interesting. And then hearing, like for me, I just learned a day ago that uh, he's essentially kind of a an uncle to Tiki and Rondé by by way of knowing uh, their dad from Virginia Tech and you know Bruce's history, uh, being the first white player to room with black players at Virginia Tech. Um, you know, I don't know where he learned to be equitable, to be fair, and uh, to be a standout in a field of coaches that don't seem to get it. Um, again, when I say all this, you don't deserve a medal. Uh, I hope we can get to the point where a Bruce Arians is more the norm. but. He was taught it somewhere along the line, and I can't help but think, you know, it, it just came natural to him through his experiences. Um, and as I asked him those questions, it did seem like it was more, hey, listen, this is just how it is. Uh, I didn't have to learn it. Nobody had to teach me how to be a good human being, how to be fair, how to respect people. That's just the way I am. Um, and I, I believe that. Um, so let's look at their schedule real quick. I mean, we talked about this. 
Tampa Bay is going to open up with New Orleans. And interestingly, uh, as an extension of a point about COVID and hard count and some of that discussion, they are going to play in a hostile environment that maybe won't have any fans. So that could be a leg up for them. But I do think that early on, when you look at their schedule, I think we talked about that as I live stream the schedule um, reveal, they have a lot of challenges on the front end. Now, there's one positive if you're the Bucks. Tom Brady, who's older, um, who certainly could use rest, could use warm weather, is not going to play too many games uh, in the cold. I think if I remember correctly, Charlotte uh, is projected to be the coldest game they play in. And that is, as I look at this thing real quick, they are playing the Panthers November 16th. Otherwise, after that, You've got L.A. at home, November 23rd. Uh, you also have Kansas City at home. That's a terrific draw out of division. You could have gone to Arrowhead late in November. That could be a tough place to play anyways, but um, you had the cold weather in for an older quarterback, that sort of thing. That's not ideal. And then your road games uh, are, are dome games the rest of the way. you got a long homestand in there in November. Uh, you know, you're going to spend a month at home before you take a short trip to Atlanta, December 20th. So from you know November 15th when they play the Panthers, uh, they're going to get on a plane to come home, and they're not going to take a flight longer than an hour or so uh, until they go to Detroit, December 26th. So uh, they finish the, game, the, the year at home against Atlanta. The back half of their schedule, uh, it's a lot of home games, and the road games are, are, are pretty temperate or indoors. Uh, and, you know, they, they're going to have some challenges early. They're going to have some real challenges early with the Saints. Uh, they're going to have to go to Denver, which is never easy. Uh, and, and, you know, Drew Locke has more weapons, and, and it's a longer trip. Then you've got the Chargers at home, the Bears on the road, the Packers. At home, that's going to be a test. And then Vegas, week seven. That should be a lot of fun. Uh, Tom Brady in Vegas, we talked about it. That's Halloween. I joked on an earlier pod about how funny it's going to be to see a bunch of grown men dressed up as pirates. You've got Raiders fans. We'll see if the black hole transfers. Uh, The gentrified black hole. A bunch of Vegas businessmen in suites. Um, I'm sad just thinking about it. And then... We've got Bucks fans who are going to take over the slot machines in Vegas. Uh, no bottle service, just slots. That's the type of fans I think Tampa fans are. And I mean that as a compliment. You guys are smart with your money, I think. I don't, I don't, Tampa fans don't strike me as people that are going to go to Vegas and, uh, and, and blow all their cash. Um, and then you got the, uh, the rest of the season, which we already discussed. So I think that the number on them was about 9, 10 wins. Uh, I could see this thing going either way. The, the must wins are, are pretty clear. Um, the must win is probably that second Saints game. I think that's going to be a must win for them at that point in the season. And that could catapult them into a nice run in the uh, latter half of the season. They still have some tests, uh, but they have to win some division games. And I'm not going to expect them to win the opener on the road that second Saints game for me will be a big-time barometer uh, as to where they are and how that offense is gelled and uh, who, who might win that division. So, mailbag. Let's see. I'm only going to take one today. Sports Bros. Seattle Sports Bros. asks, 
if you are going to live in one NFL city, what city is it and why is it Seattle? Well, uh, I liked your question. I broke it down. And mind you, I'm not some expert on these cities, so don't get offended. I'm sure somebody listening is going to be like, my city is way cooler than you're making it sound. I haven't visited all these cities. Actually, I've been to all these cities. Some of them were business trips. Some of them were football trips. But I grouped the NFL cities into three categories. Could live, maybe, um, and then uh, and then we've got uh, no-fly zone type cities. Now, the could live cities, I just broke them down west coast, east coast. By west coast, I mean like anything really fucking far away. I'm a Virginia boy. I don't want to leave. Um, so the thought is really crazy to me. Even when I go out west and fall in love with the place, I just remind myself that you're essentially moving out of the country. Out of the could live category out west, I'm going to probably put San Francisco one, believe it or not. And it's a close one between Denver and San Fran. San Francisco, it's a city I love. Every time I go, I get this, this, this feeling. I'm like, man. I don't know, I could go to San Francisco and be a writer or something and just kind of get lost in that city. Uh, I, I love everything about it, but I'm afraid to die in an earthquake. Probably a totally um, unwarranted fear, but like, wouldn't it suck if you moved out to San Francisco and started all over and left your, your life in Virginia and like your first day, there was a huge crevasse that opened up in the middle of the freeway and your your hybrid just plummets 300 feet into the some chasm leads you to the, the core of the earth so denver i love it it's a beautiful place one of my favorite places to live it's really hard not to love denver wonderful spot la that's three for me you know i i don't like most of la but south bay um manhattan beach redondo all that stuff hermosa it's hard not to love that place you just sit there and you look out over the Pacific and you think like there is nothing for a long time and it's just it's just beautiful um you don't get that feeling in too many other places and you know you're close to everything like I could move out to like Big Sur or something but I probably feel weird and isolated if you're in South Bay there's always the reminder that if you want to leave you're going to be stuck in traffic forever um which is a bad thing but it can be comforting to know that you're not in the middle of nowhere staring out in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, you feel that isolation on one side of you, but you look east and it's a sprawling city. Um, and you know, there's a lot going on in LA. So maybe I could try that out. Uh, I did train out there one time, Manhattan Beach. Uh, my wife and I stayed there for a couple months. We stayed just a couple blocks off the beach. I loved it. Um, but after like a month and a half, I got cabin fever. I don't know if I felt claustrophobic because the thing I just described is if you try to leave South Bay, you can't. And one night I said, Meg, we're out of here. I want to go home. Uh, she said, when? I said, tomorrow. She's like, well, it's going to be hard to get a plane ticket. I said, we're driving. Um, so I packed up the Forerunner um, and I drove that thing across the country. We stopped in Flagstaff and took a nap. Uh, I did not stop other than to get gas or uh, take a piss the entire time from Flagstaff to Virginia. It was my most psychotic trucker moment of my life. Um, I pulled in probably, I think it was like 36 hours of, of driving or something like that. Uh, and we took a couple hour break. It was an unbelievable feat. 
I felt like a total trucker. Uh, yeah, LA would be three for me. Arizona and Seattle in four and five. I want to say Seattle because that's another city. When I when I when I get there, I fall in love with it. I played there for eight years, uh, late in the season in December, usually week seventeen, playing the the Seahawks. But I couldn't help but just look out my window, and I know it was always dreary, perpetually like forty three and rainy. But um, you just feel like taking a nap, and I love naps. Um, and also, the people are kind of cool. And when it's sunny out, it's gorgeous. If Seattle was sunny, 250 days of the year, it doesn't even have to be 300 like Denver, uh, which, you know, again, to rave about Denver, you got Red Rocks. It's essentially like a big REI crowd, and I'm kind of like the pseudo-Virginia hippie. Um, it feels like you're kind of in Virginia. Seattle's the same way, but in the rain. If Seattle were 250 days a year of sunshine, it would be number one on the list in a landslide. I might not even be living in Virginia. Um, Arizona, listen, not enough trees, in my opinion. It's a beautiful place. It's certainly very nice when it's not, you know, like you could fry an egg hot. Um, it's a great feeling to step off the plane when you play in the NFC West late in the season and go stay at a nice hotel. And it, just the air is crisp. It's cool. The unrelenting wind in St. Louis, you know, the, the perpetually sub 30 degree weather we used to practice in out there, it all goes away uh, when you get off the plane there, but not enough trees for me. Gorgeous place, not enough trees. Uh, the, the, the places in the middle, uh, there are a few of them. There are a few of them. Now, out of these, you know, and again, I separated these as West Coast, East Coast type cities of the places I could live. Now, the places I could, could live that are back East, I'm going to go Philly, uh, number one. Love the city. Everybody knows I'm some like weird Philly guy that didn't discover it until I was like 33. But the place is just amazing. Love the people. Certainly doesn't hurt to be on that Eagles Super Bowl team. Uh, but they also kind of leave you alone and they're cool about stuff. Like people in Philly, they don't like bother you. They don't have weirdo like conversations with you. They're, they're awesome fans. They come up. They're respectful. You know, thanks for the Super Bowl. I met three Eagles fans on, on, on a hike today in Virginia. They're everywhere. Let's go. I love Philly's downtown. I love how all the sports teams are right there in South Philly. The facilities is a really cool thing. Um, I love the bridges, <laughs> although Bill Burr doesn't like the bridges. <laughs> um, if you've ever heard that routine. I, I love, you know, the entire vibe for an East Coast city. Love it. It's also very central to everything. DC, not as much a fan of DC, but I'll put it in there because McLean, Virginia, I think I drove through it once, seemed like a wonderland. You don't even know that you're close to the capital of the United States. It's gorgeous. And I think the property value probably reflects that in McLean. I haven't hopped on Zillow. Uh, beautiful place. And also, like if you're in DC, low key, you're not far from the mountains. You know, the Blue Ridge, not far. Uh, if I ever had to leave Charlottesville, DC is very close. If I lived in New York, I'll put that three. Uh, let's go Brooklyn. I'm living in Brooklyn. Brooklyn's a place that maybe it seems like a good idea and I never fit in, uh, but I kind of like Brooklyn. I, yeah, I don't know if it would turn me into a hipster. I really like Brooklyn. I stayed at this hotel there called the One Hotel, I think it was. It's right under that bridge. I don't know if it's the Brooklyn Bridge or another bridge. Some of you New Yorkers are probably like, which fucking bridge, dude? There's many bridges. Many bridges. 
I love Brooklyn. Um, I don't know if I would be, you know, converted to to hipsterdom, uh, but I do enjoy the place. The thing about New York, though, is it's just claustrophobic. So I don't know if I'd be able to get over that. And a different claustrophobic, of course, than California. Because in California, you can get around and drive your car. You might sit in traffic, but, you know, there's, there's a functionality to driving your car. New York, nope. Um, St. Louis is, uh, is, is my number four on the East Coast side. I've lived in St. Louis. I love St. Louis. It's a very underrated city. It has a lot of cool different areas. Forest Park, Clayton. I lived in Clayton. Uh, I, you know, those, those mansions they built in, in St. Louis, they built mansions um, during the World Fair around the turn of the century, obviously 1900 century. Uh, and they built all these awesome man- mansions for like international dignitaries. And they left and they just became houses is what I heard. I could be spewing bullshit, but for all I know, that's true. Uh, and the mansions are not like if these mansions were in New York, they'd be astronomically more expensive, obviously, but pick any major metropolitan area. These mansions are gorgeous. They're old, cool architecture, right on one of the biggest parks in the country. Actually, Forest Park might be the biggest city park in the country and a gorgeous place. Uh, and they're, they're, they're just looking out at it and they're not that crazy expensive, uh, compared to, you know, like in the mansion territory. Like if you're buying a mansion in a big city, they're actually not that insane. If you looked at some of these houses, you'd be like, oh, that's a $10 million house. And it's like a 10th of that. Um, Atlanta, I go after that. There's a bar that me and Rosilla like to go to. Uh, it is a bar that is escaping my memory right now. It is a, uh, a live music type of dive bar, but it's probably the granddaddy of all dive bars. It is a... Um, it's like the boss of all dive bars. After you go to all the other dive bars, this is like dive bar heaven. And I can't think of the name, and it's totally fucking me up. Yes, the bar is called Northside Tavern. It's amazing. I, we shut that place down at the Super Bowl uh, a year ago. What a long year. I mean, that was a whole Super Bowl ago, but golly, this, this year and a half has been something. Atlanta is a cool place for a big city. Uh, let me go Miami and I don't know why it's wasn't even earlier. I love Miami. Put me just about anywhere there, but you know, Miami is a big place for guys that like do pull-ups on the beach with weightlifting gloves and stuff like that. It's just a, I would feel fat, you know, like if I moved to Miami, I don't know if I could elevate my game to be as obsessed with my image as everybody that lives down there is. But I guess if you're outside all the time, you work out a lot. It's funny, I, I won't do shit for a month and I'll go on like vacation in Miami and I'll get drunk all, all, all night and then wake up and be like, oh, let me ride the bike for three hours or go run outside for five miles. Like, I don't even do that. But there's just something about being outside. I like Miami. Miami's there. Jacksonville. I could live in Jacksonville right by the beach. Okay. Not a lot of people, one of the biggest cities, landmass wise. In the United States, a place called The Landing. Uh, it's cool. They have some shops down there, a Hooters. Also, used to go there to play uh, baseball in high school. We go play the Jacksonville teams and get our fucking asses kicked. One big negative about Jacksonville is the uh, water tastes like um, sand, the tap water. 
Don't know if that's changed. We stay at the Sea Turtle Inn down there, if I have any listeners from Jacksonville, which has since been demolished, I think. Um, but I like the place. Uh, again, big city, not a lot of people. Um, Charlotte. Charlotte could be higher. Charlotte is very underrated, okay? I just haven't spent enough time there to confirm that. But it's the type of place you go and you're like, yeah, this place is underrated. But I never spend more than two, three days. Um, Tampa. Threw it in there. Imagine it's hard to be depressed there. The in the middle cities for me, okay? Uh, and I'll run through these quickly because they're places I could go either way on. Chicago, great like culture, like very strong Chicago culture. It's like a they got their own thing going there. Um, definitely nice in the summer, just very cold. A lot of wind, right? Y'all, y'all even like take pride in the wind. You know, when somebody takes pride in something that's kind of shitty, it's like a bad sign. Uh, yeah, a lot of wind. Um, but Kyle loves it. I never spent a ton of time there. Lake Forest looks beautiful. I know Kyle lives in Lake Forest. I'm not going to give you all his address, but he's there. Um, <laughs> but Chicago's probably at the top of the maybes for me. Also, you got that lake, basically like a uh, an ocean. Um I'm going to go New Orleans as a maybe. Always charmed by New Orleans. But I think it's a place that would swallow me whole. I think that New Orleans uh, would turn me into, I don't, I don't know, like the personification of the song, The House of the Rising Sun. And I don't even remember what that song is about. I just feel like it's about somebody like losing everything they have and stumbling out of some seedy place at six in the morning in a New Orleans. Is that song about New Orleans? It's just the vibe I get. Like that a month, like the first week in New Orleans, I think is awesome. And then like two and three weeks in, I think everybody starts looking at me like, you're not from here. And then like a month in, I feel like I just go off the the, the rails and, uh, and completely descend into madness um, or alcoholism. Yeah, so uh, San Antonio, I'll say a maybe because I'm sure it's nice. Dallas, I'm sure it's nice. Sunny down there. The only thing about San Antonio and Dallas is I don't fuck around with like huge rattlesnakes. And if you're not from Texas, I think you have this misconception that rattlesnakes are generally like the size of black snakes or other like relatively harmless snakes. Rattlesnakes are like fucking two by fours, like just slithering two by fours those things are huge and they're everywhere when you talk to people in oklahoma or texas like that's the one reason you couldn't give me enough land in texas somebody was like i'm gonna give you three thousand acres you got to pay twenty dollars for it i'd be like well i'd be wasting twenty dollars because i'm never coming down there fuck rattlesnakes so yeah dallas or san antonio i'd have to get like a loft downtown but sure they're nice places baltimore Close to home, good seafood. Close to home, good seafood. Also, they have a huge smokestack. Houston, nice place. Nice malls. Um, won a Super Bowl there. Pretty fucking hot, though. It's a maybe for me. I could do it. At least it's not dreary and depressing. Okay, so no offense to this group of cities um, that are no-fly zones for me. Uh, Detroit, no thank you. Uh, also that city is essentially in Canada. Did you realize that? I didn't until I played there and looked across the river at a place called Windsor. Had no idea. 
Detroit is essentially Canada. Although I hear it's underrated athletes who live there say it's a very underrated city. Cleveland, okay? I would live in Cleveland before I live in Detroit. I thought Cleveland gets a bad rap. Maybe I was there in the summer and that's what made it okay. Uh, Kelsey explained to me that in the wintertime, it depends on where you live because different places get dumped on with snow differently than others. I like snow. Also, didn't mind Cleveland. Didn't mind the vibe. Maybe I was having a good day. Uh, Buffalo. <sighs> Again, not ranking these right here. They're just no fly zone for me. Love that fan base. I think it'd be so cool to play football there. I just don't know if I want to live there. It's essentially Canada. I think Buffalo is one of that places you got to be from Buffalo to want to live in Buffalo. And I respect that. When I went there to play, um, not only was I super impressed with the whole game day experience, also like going to meetings the night before, I just got this like urge to go get whiskey drunk solo at like a dive bar that only factory workers go to and just like put quarters in a jukebox. Uh, that was just my Buffalo feeling. And I don't know if that'd be a good feeling to have 365 days of the year. Um, but I would like to get drunk in Buffalo. So if I ever get up there, anybody's listening from Buffalo, it's a respectful pass. Uh, Pittsburgh, very blue collar, cool place. I contend that Pittsburgh has weird juju, and I don't mean juju uh, Smith-Schuster. I just mean it's just one of those places that you're like, something happened here. I don't know if it's like Wicca, witchcraft, um, something happened there. You know, I do want to be fair to Boston because I just lived in Foxborough. I know, I know that you know, I'm putting Boston in the no-fly zone. Let's move them to the middle. And that's not me being political here. It's not fair to me to um, associate a year in Foxborough living behind Patriot Place, which is a lovely neighborhood, uh, but not if you're from out of town. Uh, it's not the easiest place to live, especially with all that cold weather and darkness. I'm sure if I lived in the city, I heard the city was great. I literally only went to the city uh, other than to the airport, I believe one time as a New England Patriot. So good thing they're called the New England Patriots because I did not live in Boston. But Boston, let's move them to the middle. So that was an oversight guy. Kansas City. This was a tough one to put in there because I've lived in St. Louis. How different could Kansas City be? But I think probably a lot different. It's a whole state to the left. Um, things change as you get into that area. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Airport's really far from uh, the city, which is, was a major oversight on the part of the settlers of that city. The airport is an hour from the city, and the stadium feels like it's like an hour from both of those things. Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I just feel like it was fairly spread out, um, and I don't like barbecue enough you know, to make that the main event for me there. Although I hear there's a power and lights district is wonderful. Guys, on any of these cities, if I'm wrong, tell me why I'm wrong. Let's just be respectful about it. I'm not being disrespectful to your hometown. I'm just telling you maybe I'd rather not live in, in uh, Buffalo or Kansas City or Green Bay for that matter. Lovely place, charming. The things I think about besides Brett Favre and guys who are like beat red in sub-zero temperatures drinking beer at the stadium, which is awesome, but that's only eight nights a year. I think about Appleton. The steakhouse is there is the steakhouse in Appleton's lovely. I also think about making a murder. That was a depressing um, documentary. Yeah, no thanks. Coming down the home stretch here. Haven't said Las Vegas yet. You might wonder 
Uh, if that was an oversight, it was not. I could not live in Las Vegas. Now, my brother lives in Henderson. I hear that's, that's lovely. But in Las Vegas, um, my experiences are that it can be very fun. But as of late in my 30s, it just gives me anxiety. Uh, if I'm not drunk immediately when I get there, uh, or if I stay too long with a hangover, it starts feeling weird. The gremlins come out, um, you know, Sunday scaries, whatever you want to call them. You get Sunday scaries before you get drunk in Las Vegas, in my opinion, unless you're in your 20s. It just gives me anxiety. Minneapolis, okay, cold. Maybe could move up on the list if it were warmer, like a Seattle effect. If it were at least just like East Coast temperatures, I hear it's a nice place. Obviously, the police department sucks. A lot of ass, but so do a lot of the departments that, um, well, I'm not trying to make this a political mailbag segment, but I can't mention Minneapolis without highlighting just how shitty their police department has been. But a nice, nice place. A lot of lakes up there. Indianapolis. I don't mean to put this last. It's just last on my list um, that I had jotted down here. I'm sure it's a lovely place, but I can't live there. I can't do it. Those, I think that's 32 cities. So good question, Seattle sports bros. Uh, Seattle is up there. If I had to do a top three looking back, probably Philly, uh, Denver, San Francisco. How's that? And then everything else after that. So 